You were listening to Breaking the Waves, conversations about the Dutch pandemic. My name is Matt Cornell. Uh, I am a teacher, uh, a film curator, and a sometime uh, PhD student at the University of Amsterdam. And I've lived in the Netherlands for uh, just over eight years. And the reason for starting this podcast is that my Dutch, uh, like many uh, international folks here in the Netherlands, still isn't good enough and certainly not good enough to follow all of the news and debate surrounding the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So uh, the idea behind this podcast is to interview uh, journalists, activists, and researchers who have been critical of or skeptical of uh, the Dutch government's coronavirus strategy. Uh, so I hope that this will be a resource uh, not just for uh, English-speaking uh, residents of the Netherlands or people outside of the Netherlands, but also for those who uh, are hungry for uh, alternative voices and more information that has not made it into the mainstream press. My first conversation is with Mick Block. Uh, Mick Block is chairman of the Stichting Protect Everybody Foundation and one of the leaders of the associated Containment New Platform, which aim for a zero COVID strategy and protection of the most vulnerable in society against the pandemic. He's written many articles and appeared on network TV to argue for less virus, more protection, and above all, more science and honesty. Mick was trained as a strategy consultant and investment banker and is an entrepreneur in education, recreation, and activism. A Dutch national, he lives in Amsterdam with his family, but has temporarily sought refuge in Italy where schools enjoy significant protections against COVID. This conversation uh, was recorded on Sunday, April 18th of 2021, and it lasted for about three hours. So what you're going to hear is a highly condensed version of our talk. So Mick, I want to thank you for agreeing to be my first uh, guest on what I uh, hope will be a number of interviews about the coronavirus situation in the Netherlands. We're speaking today Cases are up 10% over the previous week. They're reporting almost 9,000 cases a day for the past uh, few days. Uh, the ICUs are at uh, the same level that they were at the end of April last year. And of course, uh, one of the biggest controversies in the news right now is that the government put about a billion euro uh, into these field lab experiments, uh, which are basically like these super spreading events. Uh, how did we, in your perspective, get to this point in the Netherlands? Well, the field labs is a separate thing because that sort of edges towards clientelism and, and things like that. And I'm not sure that had much to do with the original uh, choice of strategy. One thing that's been our, our main task, successfully or not, the past year, and when I say our I mean, myself and some other people who are activists against, you know, too much virus in society. Um, one thing that has been uh, a, a, a fixture uh, among all media is that there has been some criticism, but the strategy itself has never been named nor criticized. And the strategy in the Netherlands is, as the prime minister very eloquently put it on March 16th, is to allow the virus to pass through, infect most people as fast as possible so we can get this over with, but without overloading hospitals. 
Now, we found out within two weeks after the speech that the overloading hospitals didn't work very well. Hospitals were overloaded at that point by a factor of three to four in a country where getting into hospitals, if you're a bit older, is already quite a challenge. Uh, so compared to a country like Italy, where everybody who's sick just goes to hospital uh, or adequately, uh, adequately sick, um, you're talking five, six, maybe even 10 times more sick, sick people that they uh, allowed to happen. Um, so the strategy is very simple. Allow the virus to pass through as quickly a strategy for North America and Europe this past year. And it is the flu playbook. Um, they had a choice between flu and Ebola, sort of uh, to exaggerate a little bit. They chose flu. They chose wrongly because countries that, uh, you know, try to suppress the virus or countries like Norway and Finland that discovered that it's possible to keep virus levels quite low are doing much better. They have, uh, you know, a much freer life, fewer deaths, or as a matter of fact, Finland and Norway look like they will, uh, now that we have vaccines, will, uh, will survive this pandemic without excess deaths, which you can't say for the Netherlands by any measure so uh they chose a strategy now why they chose it is a different um, you know a different uh, um, a discussion you're welcome to ask a question if you like uh but the strategy is what it is it's to not overload hospitals uh, for the second time now uh, these past few months they've allowed hospitals to in fact overload uh because technically when you uh, as they are doing now uh, when the average age of of people coming into hospital is falling quickly it's now at 62 this means that they're filtering out the 70-plusers. Um, um, and also, as, as you perhaps know, there are now COVID hotels and many people are being sent home with uh, oxygen flasks, oxygen bottles, uh, to, to basically create their own hospital at home. Um, now, this is a situation where, uh, technically, from my point of view, uh, healthcare has collapsed. So that's my... Um, that's my take on the strategy. It's the same take as the government. It's what they said on March 16th. It's what, what they've been, um, been admitting in recent weeks. With the only uh, gap between myself as an activist and the rest of the country being that uh, people don't seem to be able to believe this strategy. They cannot believe that the government selected their bodies for infection so that we might return to a normal life more quickly. People don't want to get this thing in their bodies. They expect to be protected. The law expects uh, the government to try to protect us, but they never did. They took uh, my bodies, and I don't know your age, but I'm 50 years of age, and I'm sort of at the, at the limit where they thought if uh, Michael and his kids can get infected, all the better. We might save some of the elderly who will die in droves if we infect them. Um, and, and that's it. And we know how this sort of happened. Uh, there's a Swedish scientist, Giseke, who, um, who was absolutely certain you could get this virus over with uh, within two months without overloading hospitals. He said so on TV a couple of times. He said, just let it pass through. Don't worry too much. Well, he was wrong. And since then, and this is a different discussion entirely, the Netherlands has not been able to extract itself uh, from this, uh, you know, uh, as it's called in Dutch, a controlled rampage of the virus, gecontroleerd um, uitrazen. Whereas in a country like the UK, quite quickly, the, the media, who of course don't trust the government uh, uh, to save their lives, uh, immediately said, wait, wait, wait. So you're talking 100,000, 200,000 deaths, 
and and it's not a good idea let's let's try to keep it lower there might be a vaccine in the year which in fact happened and uh so that's why in britain the the room for maneuver was reduced very quickly whereas in the netherlands and uh and sweden and to perhaps a lesser extent in belgium uh this room for maneuver continued to exist and they've used it and no amount of uh, of deaths of long covid which in the netherlands should amount to hundreds of thousands of people now who are effectively handicapped, um, most of which, or many of which can't work uh, or can't work effectively. No amount of damage uh, to society. The economy is in ruins after a year. You know, international Dutch organizations said we can handle walk one lockdown in the spring of 2020, but don't make lockdowns come back. Well, now we have eight months of, uh, of closed bars. No amount of rational argument or science or, or damage to society seems to be able to dent this strategy. So uh, you raise a lot of uh, points that I wanna follow up on. Uh, maybe we'll just start with that speech that Rutte gave, which I, I remember uh, when I read the translation of it, feeling chilled by, uh, and yet uh, it was widely praised uh, across the political spectrum as being a very like sort of wise and uh, uh, powerful speech. And uh, I, there were, I mean, I, I also know there was criticism uh, but as you say, it happened just uh, a few days after the UK had announced a similar strategy and then backed away. Uh, when I guess when Ritter was challenged on this, he kind of, you know, responded with a little bit of faux nuance and said, "Well, this is not the goal. Uh, herd immunity is not the goal. It's a it's a consequence of uh, our strategy." Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, that maneuver uh, and? why it seemed to satisfy a lot of people? Yeah, well, let's not talk too much about Rutte. He is a, a politician without vision and without any principle. Uh, he is the only uh, minister or secretary on the whole planet who has been um, uh, convicted of, uh, of discrimination, of racism in office. Uh, and, and, and the Dutch decision after that was to make him prime minister. Now, that's what kind of happened. So, He's also been in power, as you know, for 10 years. So the fact that Rutte will weasel uh, his way out of any uh, tight spot uh, or try to do that uh, is not something I want to talk about. This is there for anybody to see the, uh, all the other scandals that have happened in recent days and weeks and months and years are there for all to see. If there are still people who think that Rutte uh, always tells the truth, they need to go to their uh, GP as fast as possible. Uh, because that's if, they can, if they can get an appointment, if they can get an appointment, if the hospital has room, if they have some medics, because there's a lot of GPs now being called up for hospitals, because of course uh, hospitals are, are way overloaded. Yeah, so not too much talk about Rutte because he will try anything he can. Uh, and the interesting right. thing is, however, is that you saw this happening. I had the same as you on March 16th when I saw his speech. Of course, I saw this coming. I ordered my, uh, my masks and gloves on January 25th. It was clear that a pandemic was coming and I expected to be protected by my government. And in, in late from late January, you could see the RFEM, the Dutch CDC, start to talk about it's not contagious from human to human. It's, it's basically like the flu. You can go and celebrate a carnival because it's celebrated in small groups. This was all total bullshit. And uh, so I started to understand within a few weeks that they were actually probably not gonna try to protect us. 
and maybe even go for this herd immunity thing, which I was just starting to read about, which was back then and still is a very wild sort of epidemiological gamble that nobody had ever tried before. But on March 16th, it became official. It took me two years, uh, two hours to get my breath back uh, after uh, the speech. I, of course, wanted to throw my TV out the window. Um, after I got my breath back, I wrote a Twitter thread uh, analyzing his speech, which still stands proud to this day, and which has given me and our, our group of activists a lot of credibility that we immediately were able to deconstruct his speech for what it is. Uh, and predict the future of what was going to happen, which is the future that has happened over the past year. Now, your question also contains the sub-question, how was it possible that in Britain, when Johnson went on TV uh, once or twice to say, let's take it on the chin, or let's not lock down too much so that we are open for commerce before other countries in the world, people didn't accept this. The media did not latch onto this or let it happen. They immediately said, wait, this is bad. This is not scientific. 200,000 people dying just like that is eugenics or genocide. And, 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 and Johnson had to back down, although I must say that since then he has allowed of, a lot of infections to happen in any case. But the, the, at least the discussion, the room for maneuver was, was much reduced. Now, in the Netherlands, we know that there were discussions around March 10th between the government and all members of parliament, because this uh, crazy policy was, uh, was agreed to by all 150 members of parliament. And it looks very likely that in those days, uh, they, they co-opted the major, major newspapers. Okay, but can I stop you there? So you're saying all members of parliament, so including members of the so-called left and progressive parties, like uh, the Green Party, I mean, uh, the Gr uh, Green Links, uh, uh, the SPA, all of these left-wing and liberal parties also supported the strategy. Yep, they, uh, there were some parliament votes that were not even necessary. It was by, by acclamation, basically. And sometimes there was an actual vote. And in the, in the, in the early period, um, uh, there were uh, these votes were usually uh, 150 to zero, or there wasn't even a vote because everybody seemed to agree. This is a big contrast with February, when some parties, including the SPA, were trying to push a little bit towards, you know, maybe we should think about, you know, containing this or see what happens or build up test trace isolate or start wearing masks. So they did say some of the right things. Apparently, uh, well, it's, it's more than apparently, there is no, no alternative to, the, to uh, the story than that what happened is that around uh, March 5th, the government uh, started to co-opt uh, civil society, starting with members of parliament, and just told them, look, we really have no alternative. We can't stop this. If we let it pass through very slowly, like other countries will, we'll be stuck with this for 10 years, which will ruin everything. And uh, we also can't uh, allow this virus to run rampant without any control measures, because that will also destroy society. So this is our uh, prudent uh, maximum control approach, which internally within government was called the controlled rampage, gecontroleerd uitraas. Okay, so maximum control was the sort of public-facing terminology. Well, it's pure but, propaganda. But, but internally you're saying it was maximum, uh, or it was a controlled outrage. Uh, controlled rampage. Rampage, yeah. sorry, yeah, uh, okay. Controlled passage of the virus through the population as fast as possible 
but not too fast to overload hospitals. Yeah, this is foolish, it's called mitigation. This is a normal epidemiological strategy when you're dealing with a non-lethal virus. And the flu is on the limit of that. So some countries in the world try to limit flu outbreaks in winter with, with, uh, with vaccination and some control measures. Uh, in Asia, of course, masks are popular. Um, most Northern European countries tend to ignore the flu. I'm not gonna get into whether that's a good idea or not, but they basically decided to treat it as the flu and not as a, uh, an A-list, uh, as the A-list infectious disease pandemia that it is, uh, which also put lots of legal obligations on, on governments, including the Dutch one, to contain the virus with all uh, measures and, and, and means at, uh, at the government's disposal, which they never even tried. But the interesting thing is how civil society was co-opted. And of course, key here are the uh, newspapers and the major talk shows. And we now know that the Volkskrant and Telegraaf, two major newspapers, that their, um, that their editors agreed with the government to not allow criticism into their newspapers, or at least not too much. And we also know that the uh, editor of the Op-Ain, Op major uh, uh, nightly talk show on TV, said something to the same effect. And we have noticed very um, uncomfortable behavior from the AD newspaper and uh, RTL News, who in both cases uh, interviewed us, placed something after that uh, on their websites, and then it was taken down again, uh, where our joke has always been, the moment we have talked to a journalist, you immediately need to cut the telephone lines between Hilversum and Bildhoven where the Dutch CDC is located. Otherwise, we will never make it on the air or into the newspaper. Okay, so, and, and just, just to be clear for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Dutch press, the, the media outlets that you're describing run the gamut from a so-called liberal uh, paper like Volkskrant to uh, more right-wing, right? So it's just the entire spectrum of news was sort of in line with the government strategy, right? Yeah, well, I would argue that the spectrum of Dutch newspapers is much narrower and much more to the right than the spectrum of parliamentary politics, uh, because the Volkskrant is really uh, has quite a lot of uh, commentators, and it's, for instance, the chief of its um, opinion um, editorial board uh, has said racist things uh, in the past about the people of North African descent, for instance, and even blacks. Um, so I, 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 I think it's absurd to call the Volkswagen newspaper uh, liberal or left-wing. They used to be. Fair enough. The staff is quite a radical right. You know, some countries would call them uh, you know, even worse than that. Uh, there are some like Trau and Parol and Ade, which don't have a particularly strong political signature, but it's definitely not of the left. Uh, if you want to talk left-wing newspapers, you have to go to the magazines like the Groene, but even they have said bad things about uh, ethnic minorities and immigrants in the past. It's things that, you know, made me cancel subscriptions. So I, I'm not even sure that there's any voice uh, in the media that I might uh, comfortably call a left-wing or even liberal. Right. I was also struck by the fact that, for instance, the correspondent, which is supposed to be a sort of investigative, a sort of a progressive investigative uh, journalistic outlet, has done really no critical investigation whatsoever of Dutch corona policy. Well, there's two things here that are going on, I think. One is that uh, Dutch society is a club. 
And uh, I think that also is a large part of the explanation of why Sweden and the Netherlands are the only two countries which have been uh, openly uh, infecting its population as much as possible with this virus. Is because people trust the government, uh, they would rather uh, die than not trust their government. And in this pandemic, that's literally the case. And uh, because some of us have died because they trust the government, many of us have. Most parents actually believe the total horse manure about children not being infectious. And then we get, I've gotten over the past year, probably hundreds of comments from parents saying, I had to go to hospital for three days or two weeks because I got COVID or I felt very bad for three weeks or after six months, I'm still not my old self. I still can't get, to get back to work. I got it through my kids. How is this possible? Because kids are supposed to be non-infectious which it was never true, of course, with infectious disease of children are always the main vector. Um, so the government never, ever believed this. Uh, and we know that, uh, that Jaap van Dissel, the, the CDC director who runs this whole show uh, in April admitted to parliament that he chose this strategy because he analyzed that most infections were asymptomatic, which also, which meant that there was not so much damage. So he thought he could let this virus run through the population, pass through the population without too much damage. But it also means that aerosols, you know, floating particles of virus and water are dominant because, you know, asymptomatic people do not cough. And it also immediately points to children who are always the main suspects in respiratory diseases uh, and who in many cases with COVID show no symptoms and never cough or rarely cough. So it is a, a, a fact that they chose this strategy because children are very, um, uh, infectious. Uh, they told the opposite. This was a necessary lie. Uh, and uh, a lie that, for instance, I'm in Italy now. This lie was never told. Schools here were closed immediately because they were immediately analyzed as the main vector of uh, infection. And that's why they did a lot of things in Italy to protect schools with masks, heavy distancing, heavy ventilation, heavy honesty, and a lot of testing. All of these measures the Netherlands never took because that would have been extremely dangerous for the, uh, for the strategy. But to get back to the point of how society was co-opted, uh, this is a fascinating thing to see how even now after a year, with, this, with the uh, Attorney General, uh, Fred Grapperhaus, at, uh, saying on TV, I am proud of our policy this past year because we managed to, to get 25% of our people infected because we dosed our lockdowns well, which means, they, they did it as little as possible to get as many people infected as possible. This, he should have been arrested by the Attorney General within three minutes. Uh, this is highly illegal uh, to do this. Uh, right, in right. And, and again, and to put that in context again for our listeners, uh, if you take uh, the government's own estimate, which is 25%, I know there's some uh, debate about uh, the actual percentage of uh, the population has been infected. But if you take that percentage of 25%, that's over 4 million people. Uh, and again, by the government's own estimates, 10% of those uh, infected will suffer from long COVID. Conservatively, uh, using the government's own estimates, we're looking at uh, 400,000 with long COVID. This is a part of the broader story that we're talking about. People from outside, perhaps recent immigrants or people who like me, are so internationally focused that we um, act like outsiders. 
um, or think like outsiders don't understand how much Dutch society is a club. And you can see this in the fact that uh, I, as an activist against too much virus this past year, have a lot of political friends, mostly on Twitter, Facebook, but also, you know, on what's whatever. And most of them still, the, the coin still isn't dropping about what Grapperhaus, the Eternal Ge Attorney General, said a few days ago. And most of them were angry at me the last few months when I said, no, over a third has been infected already. We're at five or six million. And people said, no, no, it can't be because that will be too evil. And I said, this means nothing. The fact that something is evil to you does not mean that the Dutch government isn't doing it. Get away from that thinking. They chose this strategy. You know this. We are at, we have uh, uh, our world and data calculates that we have six, seven times more measured infections than many other countries, even though uh, a, a Dutch official would rather die than measure uh, infections in schools correctly, if I may exaggerate a little bit. So uh, even people who are with us, uh, Wim Schellekens, who's part of the red team, which is a critical group of sort of scientists and experts who, who have been trying to change government policy towards a more rational one of low virus, he, even this morning, in reply to my tweet, said it cannot be true that they intentionally allowed people to get infected, but it's true. The actual number, because you can see now they're using the boiling frog in a pot uh, method, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, they used to say uh, that 2 million people have antibodies in their blood. Um, but in recent weeks, if you check what Van Dissel, the CDC director, uh, uh, said uh, he has been ramping up this number and his latest figure is 5 million. I think if he'd said three months ago, we're at 4 million, there would have been an uproar. But with the boiling frog effect, which of course the water gets warm and warm and the frog forgets to jump out because at some point it dies. Um, I'm against boiling frogs, by the way, I'm a vegetarian. But um, the... Um, uh, this is what's happening. They are, uh, I'm sure that within a few weeks or months, they will proudly claim that there are seven or eight million people infected, also because at the moment it's going extremely quickly. Um, but uh, so Mick, this is where I would, um, I, I see some uh, room for nuance in the sense that the other reason one could quibble with like just how, with estimates about just how many people have been infected is that let's say the number is much higher uh, than the government is currently claiming in terms of the number of infected. Uh, we're not seeing in the excess deaths numbers, which of course are very high, we're still not seeing uh, the kinds of numbers that match up with what we know to be the case fatality rate for coronavirus. In other words, if they've infected, I, I've seen estimates as high as 50% of the population, we would expect to see many, many, many more dead, right? Well, yes and no. Um, I'm in Italy where even though the government has much less virus tolerance than the Dutch government, the number of deaths is actually similar or even higher. Yeah. And uh, this has a lot to do with age profile. Italy has a lot of super old people. In the Netherlands, a 95-year-old is a rarity. In Italy, it's not. Um, now, why is a different matter? But uh, especially at the very top, people in their 90s and 100s, uh, Italy has far more uh, people relatively. And they die by the droves with COVID, of course. Uh, there are other things, there could be policy things that are going on here, more old people living with, uh, with, 
with their grandchildren, which is certainly the case in Italy, uh, compared to the Netherlands, where old people tend to live alone or with their uh, in old people's homes. Uh, so it all depends a little bit. But the other side of the story is that the Dutch strategy is very explicitly to channel infections towards the young. Most Dutch school children have had COVID, and that was even before Christmas, probably. It's difficult to say because there's no testing. But if you take the Cornell University uh, uh, method of calculating what the probability of infection is in a time period in an un, um, unprotected classroom, you end up with 70, 80% of kids in the Netherlands who will have had COVID even before Christmas. And now B117 happened, uh, the British variant over the past few months. So I would expect that most children by now will have been, will have been exposed. Uh, which also means, because with B17, when your child has it, you'll probably get it too, that most parents have been exposed. And there's offices and other places. So if you just channel, uh, you don't need to channel infections very much towards the young to, to make the IFR, the infection fatality rate, collapse completely, because children almost never die when they get infected, maybe one in 10,000 or something. And even my age, people of 50 years old, I have about a one in 250 chance of dying. Um, and that's, or, uh, again, far, far lower than 0.7%. So the Dutch government, and this is my, the core of my story, they are not extremely incompetent uh, containers. They are extremely competent, uh, or not extremely competent, uh, but quite competent, you know, tolerators of the virus uh, trying to minimize uh, uh, collective social damages by channeling infections to the young. And that's exactly what Fert Grapperhaus said uh, in his TV interview on uh, Geen Style this week. He said, we have low deaths, but we're still at 25% of people um, uh, infected. He was wrong about the low deaths because compared to the other countries you mentioned, Germany and Denmark, uh, we have far more infections and far more deaths. But it's true that there are some other countries which have lower infections, which have similar deaths. So what he was doing, he was claiming uh, credit for having channeled infections to kids. And, uh, and their parents. And yeah. their parents, of course, yeah. yes. And let me just, again, emphasize for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Dutch context, when you say that uh, Dutch schools were open, people need to understand that they were open without any protective measures whatsoever. So there were no outdoor classes, there's no mask requirement, and there's, uh, they don't test children, uh, and there's no physical distancing. So all of the, whenever we hear about, well, schools are open safely in X or Y country, uh, it's always with some kind of protective measures. But because the Dutch government, uh, the strategy was to infect children and their parents, uh, they couldn't have those protective measures in place, correct? Yes, and this has been was made quite explicit. I headed a lawsuit. Uh, we founded a, a foundation to uh, wage uh, legal war against the government to have at least a minimum of protections in schools, uh, which was a, a case that was successful, but it was also successful because we asked for quite little in the Dutch uh, political situation and legal situation. We could not have asked for more without going down in flames. So in the end, we succeeded in getting masks into secondary schools and a little bit of distancing. Um, these were measures that in other countries were taken six or nine months before and much more uh, strictly too. Primary schools uh, today are effectively without any protective measures. This is an incomprehensible incom concept to most inhabitants of this planet. 
There are no protective measures. In secondary schools, the rules are very light and they're badly observed. And they are very well uh, tuned to, because mostly it's now 1.5 meters distancing, which already is by on the way back. But as you perhaps know, if you put uh, 35 or 25 people uh, in, uh, at one and a half meters distance in a enclosed space with bad ventilation, they're gonna get COVID anyway, because the virus hangs around in spaces. So the, 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 the few things that would really have helped, which is uh, masking, uh, masking up, uh, strong ventilation, these uh, portable air filters, which are more and more uh, looking like they're the, you know, the, the secret weapon. They only cost one or 200 euros. And they seem to cancel out most or all infections in an enclosed space. They have been stopped. But this was all here to see on TV. The government said for months, uh, you know, schools are responsible, which is true, uh, for their own safety measures. Under, in, in the Dutch system, this is important to understand, schools are, we have only private schools, but they're all voucher schools. So the government pays all the costs, but the schools have an, their private entities, which are 100% responsible for the safety of children that are forced to go into the school because the Netherlands has quite a, a very strong uh, uh, school uh, obligation. And, and so if you keep your kid home, as I did, uh, you're immediately going to run into uh, fines, uh, quickly going to run into fines and even threats of having your children taken away from you, as has happened to me as well. This is the kind of stuff that happened to me. I, over the summer, uh, uh, communicated with uh, the two schools of my children asking them uh, in the nicest possible way with long, you know, letters, uh, all referenced and sourced about how important it was to have ventilation in the classroom. And I asked for a ventilate, these portable ventilators to be, uh, these purifiers to be uh, installed at my cost. And this was all refused. And they all said, look, we follow the CDC, Dutch CDC guidelines. And that means that our school is safe which is not true because as the judge also uh, agreed in our uh, uh, safe schools lawsuit in the, in the autumn of 2020, safe in this context means very specifically that the school does not generate too many infections through their parents for hospitals to become overloaded. It has, the government's policy has nothing to do uh, as the judge agreed with us uh, with protecting the health of individual children and uh, protecting them against getting infected. This plays no role uh, in, in their thinking. So I, uh, I tried to get the schools to uh, you know, become a little bit more rational and prevent infections, but they thought, and this is part of the, you know, why I think that when people start to slowly have the truth sink into them over the next few months and years, that they will get very angry, at least I hope so. Um, they were lied into thinking that children aren't very uh, contagious they were lied into thinking that uh, it wouldn't pass the teachers. They were lied into thinking that uh, children themselves almost never suffer when they get infected. And, uh, and, that's, and they, the, the summary is they just thought if we follow CDC guidelines, then our, uh, you know, our, our butt is covered and let's just go that way. So in the end, uh, I had a lot of trouble with the schools. Uh, the, in, in a, you know, it was okay. We, we were just negotiating basically, but it wasn't moving ahead. And then the, the Amsterdam um, municipality started threatening me with the removal of my children. And that's when it was time to flee. So uh, as I said also back then, I'm officially a refugee, except that I'm white and not poor. So you know, it's not that we have a bad life here, 
but I did not uh, enjoy the thought of my children getting infected. I did not enjoy the thought of me getting infected or my wife. And uh, above all, I was not going to participate in the charade where my children get put on the herd immunity barbecue for some crazy political goal that was never going to work. So where did you end up uh, relocating? We moved to Italy, which is not a virus-free country, uh, but schools here are very well uh, defended against infection. And I'm uh, happy to report that I made it, uh, at least I, because I'm out of the four of us, uh, am the most at risk of infection, uh, being the oldest. Um, uh, I'm now vaccinated, uh, even though I have uh, four kids, three of which are in Dutch uh, or used to be in Dutch uh, public schools. Um, and uh, so that, that's one goal achieved. And we still have uh, a month and a half to go uh, in, in, in the Italian school here. And uh, I think if we make it to early June when the schools close here, um, then we can uh, look forward also to my, uh, to my wife uh, getting vaccinated before getting infected through her children in a, in a Dutch school or Italian school. But schools here have quite strong protections. And I don't actually mind that much, wouldn't have minded that much getting infected in a school system that says, look, we did everything we could within our power to protect children from getting infected, but you still got infected. That's not so bad. Yeah. It's not Ebola. I'm not going to die. I might get long COVID, but that, that's morally okay for me. And that's why Italy, and I can tell you when I arrived here late September, immediately I, I, I was able to breathe again uh, because the six months before I could not breathe in those. I couldn't think. I was constantly in a state of panic, if you will, or stress. I, I, I think I can relate to this. <laughs> and I think a lot of people listening can relate. Yeah, that's right. And I go back uh, occasionally. I was there a week or two ago. And uh, I have some business to take care of, of course, sometimes. And uh, I, I, just, I just run away as fast as I can from the Netherlands. Uh, uh, the, 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 I did not go to a single store where everybody observed basic masking rules. Not once did this happen. In Italy, I've lived here now for uh, seven or eight months, and I've not seen one instance, uh, not one person who did not wear a mask over uh, mouth and nose, not once. And uh, even on the streets, the uh, mask discipline is, is excellent. So without wanting to whitewash the Italian government's mistakes, and they certainly made them along with most other European governments, uh, there are two huge differences. Here, they will not uh, usurp the bodies, uh, claim the bodies of children for some political goal. That was never thinkable here. They were immediately honest about children getting infected and tried to stop it or reduce it. And the second thing is Italians uh, treat their sick, which means that hospital capacity, which was much greater than in the Netherlands, still allowed uh, for far lower uh, infection levels before being overloaded. So in the end, over the past year, Italy has had to break more quickly and more strongly when infections uh, started. And epidemiologically, when you're not trying to amass herd immunity, um, that means that on average, you live better here. You have more freedom. Over the past year, I've been able to do more things than my Dutch friends because amassing herd immunity means you have to, you know, you're going to end up in these yo-yo lockdowns that are on average going to cost you more freedom until perhaps some herd immunity is achieved, which may never happen. Right, and of course, those two countries that Grabberhaus uh, compared the Netherlands to, uh, 
Denmark and Germany have enjoyed more uh, social freedoms in the last 14 months uh, and uh, relatively low risk uh, by comparison. A and they're now doing better in vaccinations than we are. So I I'm curious in, in Mick, are you, are you planning to move back here uh, once uh, everyone's been vaccinated in your family uh, or uh, have you decided that, uh, that you don't want to return to the Netherlands? Well, this is a sticky issue uh, because uh, my youngest children are never going to be vaccinated in the Netherlands. This is completely unthinkable. Even the 16 to 18 year olds the next year or so will have to fight very hard to get a vaccine in the Netherlands. Uh, I have a 17-year-old daughter who uh, might get vaccinated, but I don't, I don't really think so. So with her, we are making plans to get her vaccinated outside of uh, the Netherlands. The, her sister lives in, in London, so we'll probably uh, use that route. Um, but uh, my, my primary school age children are never going to get vaccinated in the Netherlands. And they're certainly going to get vaccinated in Italy eventually. I don't know the exact timetable of vaccines. But let's assume it's going to be around Christmas that Italian 10-year-olds are going to get uh, vaccinated. And maybe, maybe early 2022, I don't know. Now, we have to make a very difficult choice, my wife and I, uh, about whether to go back to Holland for the new school year in August, which will be much better socially, much cheaper, much easier in many respects. Uh, she and I will be vaccinated by then. Uh, I'm quite uh, confident. Um, so we have to make a choice whether it's worth moving back uh, because I'm um, pretty sure that my children will get uh, infected in, in the fall in the Netherlands because the government is absolute strategy is very clear as uh, uh, vaccinations progress that you will see fewer hospitalizations and they will react immediately by, uh, by stopping control measures which means that this is also a new experiment that they're stacking on top of the other crazy experiments that they've done. Uh, every other country that has had a, a smart vaccination strategy like Israel or the UK, and now the US in some respects, but not as successfully, will keep infections low while you vaccinate. That way they reinforce each other and you go to low virus circulation and low hospitalizations. And you don't let the variants propagate. And you don't force the virus to jump uh, uh, the virus fence, uh, sorry, the vaccine fence. And uh, the Netherlands has a very different strategy. It's completely uh, clear and explicit, which is the moment we have an ICU bed available, we lift a control measure. This means that we are guaranteed much higher uh, virus circulation than before as we vaccinate. And, you know, maybe now in April or May, could be September, October, you could have uh, a, 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 you know, measured infection numbers in the tens of thousands a day, but real infections in the hundreds of thousands a day. I'm not an, a virologist or epidemiologist. I don't know, and I, maybe nobody knows, whether the people who got infected in the Netherlands a year ago can still get sick. Uh, it looks like previous infection provides you some protection against hospitalization and death. But it looks like uh, your protection from being uh, contagious lasts only maybe three months, right? So that means that uh, the, it, even if the coming months with the summer weather, with uh, vaccinations and incredible amounts of, of, uh, of immunity achieved through uh, infection, 
if all of those combine to make uh, July and August and September relatively, uh, you know, months with relatively low infection numbers, then it will most certainly come back as we start to live indoors again in, uh, in mid-September uh, or you know, between September and October, it'll come back with a vengeance. And I can guarantee you that a, go a government like the Italian government that at that point will not like such uh, high infection numbers, even if they have some room in hospitals. And I can guarantee you that the Dutch government, un unless activists like myself managed to put a dent in this crazy strategy, um, they will always choose uh, the least level of control measures as long as there's room in hospitals. And they've actually stated it explicitly in their, uh, in their roadmap, uh, for what it's worth, uh, that by August 1, all control measures will be lifted. Now, that is a crazy concept that you cannot explain to anybody in Italy or probably almost any other country in the world. Your answer addresses the sort of practical issues of, of why you, you, you can't move back in the short term. But I'm just curious, how does this, how does this affect you emotionally? I mean, uh, the, given that you and your family are, are from the Netherlands, lived here, uh, your, your kids probably lived here their whole lives. Uh, what has this been like to be in such disagreement uh, with what the country is doing and uh, how has it affected you emotionally and psychologically? I, I think I'm in a, I, I, it's been very rough. I've had more trouble with my, with thinking of my government as my enemy uh, than with uh, fear of the virus, if I can put it that way, uh, or of losing loved ones. I have lost loved ones. My, uh, my father-in-law died uh, about a month ago uh, of COVID. I think I'm in a better position than, than many other people. I sort of mentally emigrated from the Netherlands already 20 years ago as the debate in, in Dutch talk shows and newspapers moved very quickly towards plain racism against uh, uh, northern people of North African and Turkish and black descent. Um, and, and as I noticed that I couldn't basically watch any TV talk show anymore without people saying explicitly racist things or saying things that assumed racist framing and, and false facts. Uh, I stopped watching Dutch TV a long, long time ago. Uh, Dutch opinion magazines to me are mostly fascist. And uh, so I switched to you know, more Anglo-Saxon, German, Italian, and French press. Uh, I, I, I read and speak a lot of languages. And um, that, that's how you know, I've been getting along these past few decades. So my distance to Dutch society was already much greater. Now, Mark Rutte over the past 10 years, I could see his lies and racism coming from a long while. So that hasn't changed me very much. So in a sense, I've been living in my own international world in the Netherlands over the past 10 years. I travel a lot. I, I also lived uh, abroad uh, for short periods in that time. So it doesn't impact me that much, but I have to say this time, it's not about uh, hurting other people. This time it's about me. My body and that of my children was selected for infection with a list with an A group uh, infectious disease. And that has been very tough. My younger children, of course, didn't particularly uh, enjoy being away from their friends or having to learn a new language. Although, you know, we made sure that they had a good time here. We did a lot of fun things all the time and they're, they're happy, but they might've been a little bit happier in, um, in the Netherlands. So that concerns me. That's certainly a fear I have as a parent to, not treat my children the best I can. 
Although I'm also very proud that uh, thus far they have not had to suffer the guilt of having uh, uh, infected one of their parents or grandparents into hospital, which in the Netherlands is a big thing. And in any country where the virus uh, uh, you know, is allowed a significant measure of freedom. I've heard so many stories about people who have, uh, yeah, felt that they needed to leave. Of course, a lot of the stories I'm hearing are from uh, so-called expats uh international folks who chose uh, the netherlands uh, to, to live and start a life that's certainly the the position i find myself in I, I have found it very frustrating i have to say to explain uh you know especially given how uh, badly uh the trump administration handled uh the pandemic to explain to uh fellow americans what is uniquely uniquely alienating about living uh, in the netherlands during the pandemic which I think is that there is no sort of real tolerance of dissent. Um, so of course, while Trump was uh, busily telling people to inject bleach into their veins, there were governors and mayors and uh, you know uh, media that were uh, yeah. different strategies. You know, and here there's there's a kind of uniformity uh, of uh, you know there's a very limited uh, range of debate and there's a kind of uniformity in terms of how people respond and it's it's been kind of suffocating not to have a real sense of uh, that I have allies, you know? Yep. Well, that's actually our, uh, we call our containment now, which is our you know group, we call the platform because we also bring together different groups and different types of people because this policy basically um, uh, puts cucumbers in everybody's butt. It, it hurts everybody. And, and all of these groups, some of them are hurt a bit or somewhat. Uh, usually they don't realize it, that life could have been better the past year. Norwegians basically have had few or, uh, or any uh, lockdowns. Uh, they, they didn't need, even need to mask up in schools because they didn't have infections in schools. And, and these people are usually oblivious. But the people are not oblivious, and we're talking about a million people who over the past year with the extreme virus circulation have had to stay indoors or isolate themselves, which is very difficult. Half of us are extroverts, and uh, there is no correlation between having a risk factor for COVID and an enhanced risk factor and being an extroverted or introverted person. So half of the people who have these enhanced risk factors are home, are extroverts who really hate living like this. And uh, so, so those have, been, have had a tough time. Many parents, of course, many children who have infected their parents right into hospitals or the grandparents. Um, you have healthcare workers who have been, uh, and this is a very sad fact that has had no place in public debate, but a healthcare worker showing up for work in the Netherlands in a COVID ward helps people die because uh, it's ICU uh, limited mitigation. If all Dutch uh, COVID and ICU doctors would have taken a one-year vacation last year, uh, the government would have had to stop circulation of the virus. So this is a, this is extremely uh, to me. This is one of the, the the most painful things about this. Doctors they they chose this profession. I presume maybe pays well, but uh, but doctors and nurses uh, at least partially chose this profession to save lives to make people better. But the net effect with this crazy strategy is that the work that a doctor does is to uh, indirectly cause more deaths. And that to me is something I can't accept. It's, it's, it's right up there with the fact that uh, children were uh, and parents were lied to about risks and contagiousness of children. 
which uh, made it impossible for them to make informed choices about their own safety. And there's nothing more basic in life than that the uh, government allows you to make informed choices about your own safety. Right. And, and we should be clear, this is still happening uh, on the most basic level with uh, the RAVM's claim that uh, aerosol transmission doesn't really exist, and also that asymptomatic transmission isn't really a risk, right? So, for instance, a lot of our listeners may not know uh, that Dutch hospital workers uh, may not be wearing masks uh, and, and therefore contributing to spread. I, I visited my own GP back in September. Uh, when the Netherlands started to change its tune a little bit on masking. And my own GP uh, was uh, not wearing a mask. And when I asked her to please put one on during uh, the appointment, uh, she said she would, but she said, you know, the virus doesn't really spread without symptoms. Uh, and of course, a, a week or two later, I, I tried to make a new appointment and found out that she was out with COVID herself. Uh, so what we, I, I think we can only just call them lies at this point. The lies about how the virus spreads are informing the way doctors actually do their job, right? Yeah, this is a very interesting aspect. I am merely an economist and, and, uh, and, um, and, and manager or entrepreneur, whatever you want to call, call it, and strategy consultant. Uh, I'm, I'm just an informed um, a layman. Uh, I'm not a doctor. All these doctors have, uh, and I've seen it. Uh, one of my very close relatives is a is a medical doctor, and a part of the uh, senior part of the Dutch medical establishment. And I've seen it happen. How over the past 14, 15 months, he has believed the most outlandish claims coming from the Dutch CDC, which outside of you know the moment you cross the Dutch border into Germany or into Italy or anywhere else, basically, immediately become ridiculous statements. And uh, I, the, the fact that, uh, and this is how, uh, you know, Dutch society seems to be quite a capitalist country, and it is, but the government makes sure with, uh, you know, lots of kind of discussion platforms and, and co-opted decision-making and lots of subsidies. Uh, uh, in, in many ways, uh, large parts of Dutch society are completely under the control of the government, but with complete deniability if something goes wrong. And... Um, this is the Dutch model to have quangos, quasi non-governmental organizations run many things to have them as regulators. The government is actually not that active in daily life, but makes sure that what it wants to happen happens. This is true, for instance, in education where all schools are private. But uh, if you do something government doesn't want, they will make sure that you don't that you stop doing it. Uh, apparently, because of course, medics all make their money out of government coffers. They're indirectly paid uh, by the government, even though they all work for private entities. Because as I said before, Dutch hospitals, well, I didn't say this, but in the logic of Dutch society, Dutch hospitals are private entities, but they're completely financed by the government. And maybe it's because, you know, where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit or who has the, the golden rule is who has the gold makes the rules. Um, somewhere along this, uh, this line of thinking, most Dutch medics just swallow whatever information comes from the Dutch CDC, uh, which is also the entity, by the way, that decides on research grants, uh, that manages hospitals in a certain way. And so it's, 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 maybe I'm exaggerating, but they are forced to believe this bullshit 
because otherwise they can't pay off their mortgage. I'm, I'm exaggerating wildly, but this is kind of the, 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 the area of, you know, this is how you have to think about this, uh, number one. And the second thing is that Dutch people trust each other without limit, basically. That's a, a great uh, aspect of, uh, of Dutch society. It makes doing business in the Netherlands much easier because people trust each other. But they also, and that's fine, Dutch people can trust each other, but they also continue to trust the government which doesn't trust them and which abuses its power constantly. And uh, that is something where where it goes wrong. And I think that's, all these doctors are just Dutch people in the end and and nurses, and they just trust their government when they come up with things. And I, I promise you, if the government said tomorrow that the sun rises in the West, there'd be a fair amount of people who who would believe it. Yeah, it, I, I just know that it's been very frustrating because, you know, I, I see that Dutch people put a lot of faith in expertise, right? But it's Dutch expertise. So in other words, uh, you can read what the international consensus is on aerosol transmission by looking at The Guardian or The New York Times. Take your pick, right? But if, the, if Von Dissel says aerosol transmission doesn't exist, then that's what goes. And we're talking about people who are educated and, and, and have access to international information. So it's, it's very frustrating. Make no mistake, Dutch people speak excellent English. And many of them uh, regularly uh, seek out foreign media. Many of us even speak good German or French or whatever. Yeah. And so it's not actually... Uh, a secret the Netherlands is doing things differently. We made a little table that maybe you saw comparing the protections in schools in the Netherlands compared to other countries. This was a shock to many people, but I can tell you that they kind of knew already because they all, all Dutch upper middle-class people, even middle-class people have friends outside the Netherlands. They all have access to, you know, snippets of information from the New York times or the guardian or whatever. And, uh, they kind of know. And uh, I was interviewed for Eén Vandaag, the TV show, a while back, maybe four or five months ago. This interviewer asked me at some point the question, you evacuated your family from the Netherlands. How does it make you feel that you were able to do this? Because you have the money or because your job allows you flexibility. How do you feel about this? Uh, isn't it unfair to the people who can't? Yeah. Because bus drivers who have to keep on working in dangerous conditions. And I said, well, you can't load uh, the, the, the weight of the Dutch strategic choices, which put everybody in danger. You can't load that onto my shoulders. I have uh, my uh, obligation to my family, to myself and my children is, is, is far outweighs any, any duty I may have to society or any consideration of fairness. Anybody, I think I'm at risk of this virus. I think my children are. And I will do whatever I can to protect us. But then actually, after the interview, the live interview, or whatever maybe it was live, uh, we chatted a little bit. And, and it turned out that he knew exactly what was going on. And he said, I have kids in school, but I have to go to work. And he basically said to me, I'm angry at you for removing your children from the immunity turbine. Because if you don't put your kids on it, it's my dad that will go. So people... At some level, yeah, uh, and as you know, humans are very good at, at having uh, uh, co- conflicting thoughts in their head. Sure, we're extremely good at this. Uh, here, you see that 
that that that uh, there's many snippets of things that happen to me in social interactions with people who are generally supportive of the government's strategy and approach uh, that they kind of know everything already. I, I know for I, I teach in university, right? And most of the teachers can't wait to get back in the classroom, right? Like when they offered hybrid as an option, these teachers signed up for it. And I asked a friend about the psychology of this, and she said, well, you know, most of them have kids in Dutch schools. So probably the way that they think about it is, well, I'm going to get it anyways. You know, it's not that they don't believe that the kids aren't going to get them sick. It's that they know. And so going to the office anymore isn't any, you know, greater risk. And, and furthermore, they think you should also be taking that risk along with them. People, people aren't stupid. And being Dutch means um, being part of a physically extremely open society that uh, also acts as a very closed society. And, um, and, and the, 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 the thing that bridges these two things is arrogance. The Dutch think we're better than everybody else. I've yeah. seen this happen with, the, with this relative of mine who, um, when I challenged them on this, uh, said, Yes, but we have an excellent healthcare system. I, I don't know how many times I've heard this. Now, Dutch healthcare is good, perhaps even very good. It's not the best in the world, but they think they are. And um, that's where this natural reflex comes from. You should also uh, be aware, our listeners should be aware that the Dutch healthcare system is very peculiar in the way it thinks about disease. And the Dutch uh, healthcare system is the only one in the world where medical uh, care decisions, including uh, stopping uh, caring for somebody in hospital, for instance, are based uh, basically entirely on money calculations, cost-effectiveness analysis, where the uh, cutoff point is 80,000 euros per quality-adjusted life year saved. So if somebody is in hospital and the treatment costs 200,000 euros in total, but the, the algorithm, the mathematics says that this person, after coming out of this treatment, will have only two years to live, which would be worth, if you're healthy afterwards, 160,000 euros, uh, you will be denied care automatically. And this is done through the HMOs, through the health insurance companies. This is something that Sweden and Britain, by no accident, also have. This is also, the, these are the only three countries where this is, um, you know, the kind of thinking that keeps this system together. And the second thing that uh, our listeners should understand is that there is a very strong culture in the Dutch medical establishment of withholding care in, in the service of the patient. By which I mean, if in Italy you go to your doctor with a viral infection, he will send you home, he or she will send you home with an antibiotic, which is useless. Because in Italy, a doctor is supposed to care for you. In the Netherlands, if you have a viral infection, something like influenza or an aggravated cold, you will try to not call your doctor because when you do, they're going to give you kind of a, a snubby look like, why are you bothering me with this? Because it'll, I, it'll get better. I am familiar with this response, yes. <laughs> and so there is a lot of, uh, you know, which, which may be rational. I don't want to talk about this because I'm not an expert on this, although I know I've lived in the Netherlands for a long while and I've seen this in action. The concept of let nature run its course of uh, let's focus doctors on fixing uh, people who were in a motorcycle accident, basically. That's what they love to do. Because, you know, if you don't fix somebody who's in a motorcycle accident, he or she will die. 
that's what they really like. And but all these natural things like infectious diseases are basically allowed to run their course. And our listeners should also uh, be aware that this is the, the fourth time in 15 years that a dangerous virus passes through the world. The other ones were H and H1N1 and MERS and Q1. And uh, I don't know all the details, but I do know that every time the Netherlands was basically the slowest to respond. And in the end, there were parliamentary inquiries or investigations uh, where the government had to say, sorry, we failed to protect the population and people died. Now, this is a, a pattern that fits very well with the philosophy, the, the, the culture in the Dutch medical establishment of just allowing nature to take its course. Well, when you said that the Dutch chose the flu playbook uh, for coronavirus, I, I thought, well, as far as I know, there isn't much of a flu playbook in, in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, I found it, it oh. surprisingly difficult to get a flu shot in this country, uh, whereas they're handed out like donuts in the United States. Uh, and weirdly, then when we started talking about coronavirus policy, everyone started talking about herd immunity. And I said, hey, that's why you get a flu shot uh, in, in a country that's fighting the flu every year is for herd immunity. Yeah, the same is true in Italy, where uh, adults are expected to take a flu shot, not only because the flu is a nasty little virus that can hurt a lot of people and kills, you know, in a medium sized country, uh, thousands or tens of thousands of people a year. But also by taking this vaccine, you might help the elderly and allow them to occasionally go to supermarkets, if you know what I mean. Um, the Dutch flu playbook is a very big and important playbook because people don't usually don't understand this. Flu can destroy society or at least harm it. Um, because if too many people with flu, with an aggravated flu, like the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, uh, it can bring society to its knees if, if too quickly, too many people uh, get sick. And at some point, you could lose power plants. I remember very quickly reading this in New Scientist magazine seven or eight years ago, because I never realized this, that the flu can bring down power production. And if it does, of course, the rest of the economy follows quite quickly. And so the flu playbook is very, very focused on uh, making sure that some breaking uh, is applied if it starts to get too wild with hospital admissions and with disease. So the Dutch playbook does have provisions for uh, control measures because with the flu, and, and, but that, that's again the thinking that is applied here, it does not care one little bit about the total disease damage uh, of a flu uh, epidemic. That's not what the flu playbook is about. It is about protecting hospitals and protecting the economy. So it is quite similar to what happened, uh, with how they dealt with Corona. They are running the flu playbook by the letter, but yeah. also uh, they are adopting this thinking of the playbook because we've known about long COVID for, you know, since May or June, it was becoming clear. This was a very nasty virus that left a lot of people handicapped for at, about back then a few months, but there was reason to believe this was going to last all their lives. By the summer, it was clear that between five and 20% of people just don't get better, or at least it may take years or, or a long time. And, and the Dutch uh, medical establishment, and especially the CDC has been completely uh, immune to this. And here I have to speculate, I don't know, uh, either they have uh, limited rationality where they you know, don't wanna hear things that would mean that they've been criminals by allowing millions of people to get infected, 
Um, or, this is also very true, that they know perfectly well, but that they've been dosing it because they still do the mathematics that they can't stop this virus. So they still have to let this virus run through the population. Now, the second hypothesis that they know very well, but that they're also lying about long COVID, um, is, uh, is supported by the fact that Aura Thiemann, who was a senior CDC manager uh, a year ago uh, in February, spoke about a 2% mortality of this virus. And they, that was the same period where they um, allowed this virus to run through the population. So they accepted uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths and thought that this was just bad news that they couldn't do anything about. Um, so if you're, if you're willing to accept that kind of damage, then a half a million people or a million people with long COVID isn't so bad. The second thing is that you can see these past few weeks that uh, the CDC has become more honest. Uh, a week or two ago, finally, they, they now have a page on long COVID on their, um, on their website. And uh, even in the last uh, presentation to parliament, uh, the CDC director, Mr. Van Dissel, uh, even had two slides about how COVID can be quite nasty. But I have to also say that a month ago, when the first question, a month or maybe a month and a half ago, when the first question was asked in Parliament about long COVID, he was caught aback. He had no answer to that. He did not expect uh, people to ask that. And of course, no journalist had uh, at that point. Um, but this is an interesting one, because to, to my mind, now, now that we have excellent vaccines to, uh, you know, and we can finish this whole program in two or three months, to, to have uh, a choice now between two or three months of somewhat stricter measures while we vaccinate or to choose to you know, continue to build up uh, herd immunity through infection very quickly. And my hypothesis is, which I can't fully prove, but I can make it believable, is that the very slow and chaotic Dutch vaccination with strange priorities is part of the same strategy. They uh, have no desire at all to intervene in the infection of people under 50 or 55 years of age by vaccinating them. They think this is crazy. In fact, my relative uh, confirmed that uh, they think that the cost-benefit analysis of vaccinating the young is, uh, is skewed towards not vaccinating them. I, I wanted to really focus a little bit more on something that you had said earlier, you had said that uh, it's very hard for old people to get into a hospital in the Netherlands, uh, this is aside from COVID, it's hard for old people to get into the hospital. I'm wondering if you can talk about how they did manage to keep, uh, you know, the sort of spectacular uh, media of, of uh, coverage of, of uh, you know, mass death in hospitals from happening. Can you talk about how this was handled? Uh, and, and who actually did die as a result of this policy. Right. Well, you have to separate uh, pre-COVID, peacetime, and, and, and wartime, if you like. In peacetime, as, as we spoke about before, the Dutch medical establishment has quite a strong culture of evaluating whether care is, is in the best interest of, of society, but also in the best interest of uh, of people. So the natural reflex of somebody is in front of me asphyxiating, suffocating, let's do something. A Dutch doctor will always think before they start to do something, is this a good idea? 
which is a, a natural reflex that an Italian doctor won't have. An Italian doctor will immediately start to intubate or do something. Because they would consider it age discrimination in Italy to, uh, yeah. to, to it, not it, intervene. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A sick person needs to be cured. Yeah. And um, the, so, so that's, that's the basic culture that already existed in peacetime. So if something like COVID would have happened to an 85-year-old person in 2018, a, their GP would have said, before sending them into hospital, would have said, are you sure you want to do this? Because statistics say that you, when you get out, you have only a 30% chance of getting out alive, for instance. And when you do, you have about a 50-50 chance of being handicapped and being in a wheelchair, or maybe even your brain won't work anymore. You'll be just like, like a plant. Uh, so if I were you, I would think three times about going to hospital. And then the, the patient will say, okay, well, maybe I won't go then. I've had a nice long life. Just give me a family pack of, uh, of, of, of morphine. And um, th that was always uh, uh, the, the situation. I'm not going to criticize that. I'm not a, I, I don't think I'm a big fan of that, but it, it's just what it is. When COVID started to happen, uh, we know that on, I think it was uh, 27th of March, as hospitals started to fill up way too much, um, the, uh, there was a communication from the Dutch uh, uh, National Association of GPs, the NHG, which said you should really call all of your um, patients in your roster who are over 70 and ask them if they would like to go to hospital in case of COVID, because in many cases, it's not worth the trouble. And this was, of course, both a, a command, uh, but also a signaling to, uh, to people that uh, it was perhaps time to, um, you know, send in as few people as possible. And this worked fantastically. Within two weeks, the probability of being sent into hospital was reduced by over three quarters. Uh, and since most people going to hospital are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, at least back then, this shows that this signaling or command or what will you, what, 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 whatever you want, is, uh, was very successful. So let me, let me just understand. So what this means is uh, if you were in your 60s or 70s and you would get a call from your GP saying, will you sign a do not resuscitate form, agree to... Uh, palliative care, either at home or in a palliative clinic, on morphine should you get COVID. And yeah, there were many manifestations of this. Yeah. Um, in some cases, it would have been a DNR. In other cases, it would have been just a okay. Let's keep it in mind that, uh, or you know, people were. This is how Dutch society works. Most of the people who were talked to this way, as far as I can tell, by their GPs took the message. And uh, I, there are so many stories I've heard of people in their 70s and 80s who said, I don't want to go to hospital because I don't want to take the place of a younger person. Yeah, I, I actually remember inspirational media news items about old people saying, hey, you know, I've lived a long enough life. Please give my bed to someone younger. Chilling, you know, to see uh, that it was being sold as this sort of like uh, social Social value. To, yeah. A, 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 that uh, kind of form of senicide was seen as uh, a social good in a way. Yeah, I spoke uh, at length with a 76-year-old, a very sprightly 76-year-old who looks like he's 55. 
and he does a lot of sports. He used to be a physical education teacher and they travel all over the world. They have a lot of fun together, this couple. And, you know, I said, you came here today by train. And he said, yeah, you know, without a mask. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if I've had my time, I said, okay, so what happens if you go to hospital? He said, yeah, well, I'm 76. I don't think I'll go because I've been told that I would have after effects even if I lived. So I, 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 I don't want to go to hospital. And I'm like, well, come on, man, five or 10 more years. You're good for another 20, 30 years, maybe. A lot of people older than that have, have, have beaten COVID. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, totally. uh, there's lots of 90 plus people who came out of hospital alive. Not, you yeah. know, not the majority, perhaps, but um, yeah. so this, this, um, the way Dutch society works, where we talk to each other, and this talking uh, obscures a lot of, you know, powerful uh, commands being turned into people believing that it's best for them. This also happens in the labor market, where you perhaps you perhaps know over the past decades, uh, the labor quote, so the percentage of national income going to actual workers rather than shareholders has been going down rapidly and steadily. At the same time, there is a, a lot of talks going on between trade unions and big companies in the government uh, about how to do things reasonably. What in the end has happened is that the Netherlands is virtually strike-free, compare that to most other countries in Europe. We have no strikes. And they're managing to keep wages low. And they're actually selling this by saying, if we keep wages low, the, the, the employers will hire more workers, even though we're at full employment most of the time in the Netherlands. So this is a, uh, it's, 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 this, it's called the polar model. It's, it's yeah. a way of talking to each other, which if you talk, look at it cynically, is a way of making, um, you know, of allowing uh, uh, what what the powerful want to happen, but making the uh, the uh, downtrodden feel good about it, and and that's uh, definitely uh, a, a large part of the uh, this whole story about COVID, where people who are seventy six and by rights should have gone to hospital and also would rationally have gone to hospital, and they said, okay, I've I've had my time, it's fine. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing we know is that hospitals were uh, evacuated quite quickly. So uh, we know that, uh, and, and uh, you know, this has been confirmed by many inside sources, uh, when the algorithm says that a COVID patient in an ICU ward is no longer worth the trouble, he or she is allowed to die, is removed from the ICU ward, sent back to a nursing home. This happened en masse uh, last year in March and April, and given a family pack of morphine. But, no, but did they have oxygen? No, because in the Netherlands, uh, when a doctor decides that the patient is probably or certainly terminal, oxygen is withheld, even if it is medically optimal. Okay, because as we know, morphine wouldn't have been sufficient to prevent suffering. Uh, in, in most other countries, if somebody uh, feels like he or she is asphyxiating, uh, suffocating, they will do an OSAT measurement. They see if you have enough oxygen in your blood. If you do, then they will cure your feelings with morphine, but they can't help you because if they give you oxygen, your oxygen saturation is actually okay. In the Netherlands, they, the moment you've been declared terminal, they don't care. And this is an official communication. I'm not speculating. This has been written down. This is an official protocol is when you are declared terminal, you don't get oxygen which means that technically, because most Dutch COVID deaths happened uh, in people who never saw hospital, never saw a hospital, 
Um, and uh, so they died in nursing homes or at home. Uh, and since the final days of COVID are usually uh, consist of low oxygen saturation and uh, you know, needing oxygen, that means that it's safe to say that uh, most Dutch COVID victims uh, suffocated to death in great agony. But now we know, because after a year, they've gotten much better and everything. We now have COVID hotels. So people who in other countries would be in hospital are sent to sort of low care facilities. Uh, and uh, maybe about a month or two ago, they started sending people home with oxygen bottles. So literally, you're in a COVID ward. They think that you will live if they send you home with an app. Uh, uh, I think they call you every two days. If you need injections, you can give it to yourself, or maybe your GP will drop by. If you need pills, you can take them yourself. You're, you're supposed to measure your oxygen saturation yourself, and you're just put on oxygen. They give you, a, you know, I don't know, a two-week supply of oxygen, and after two weeks, somebody drops you off another two-week supply. So this is how they've managed to, and this is very difficult to calculate, uh, but based on what happened last year, I think it's safe to say that compared to a country like Italy, uh, more than half of people who should be going to hospital in my ethical playbook never make it. Um, I, I'd, I'd be willing to go as far as three quarters. Um, and then even if they make it to hospital, they're quickly, uh, uh, they're removed as quickly as is, you know, feasible, um, medically optimal according to, you know, whoever makes these decisions. Um, and, and that's how you can sustain, uh, by my calculations, a five to 10 times higher uh, infection rate than a country like Italy, which feels forced, and justly so, to treat all its people. And it, not just for COVID, but also for other things. The Italian uh, official uh, limit is 30% of COVID wards and ICUs uh, filled with COVID patients. Because their mathematics say that if they allowed more COVID infections in society, then normal medical care, you know, for cancer or other bad things uh, would, would be a harm. And they just don't, they will not accept this. That concludes my conversation with Mick Block. Uh, I want to thank Mick for uh, taking the time to talk at such length and also uh, very candidly uh, about his situation and about what Containment New is doing uh, to fight the coronavirus policy in the Netherlands. If you'd like to hear more or, in fact, get involved uh, with what Containment New is doing, uh, they have a great website uh, full of information in both Dutch and English. Uh, it is Containment New, that's containmentnu.nl. Uh, you can, of course, also follow their excellent uh, Twitter account, which is at Containment Now. Finally, I want to thank you for listening. And if you have ideas for guests or people that I should interview for this project, please don't hesitate to give me feedback. Also, any feedback that you have on the discussion with Mick Block, I would love to hear it. Until then, my name is Matt Cornell, and you have been listening to Breaking the Waves, Conversations about the Dutch Pandemic.